Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, so good morning. My name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at uh, Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. We are continuing a series through the letter to uh, the Ephesian Christians uh, from Paul's pen. And so we're still here in this very first chapter. Uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is one, one, one long run-on sentence. Paul, the language has gotten beyond Paul in some ways. And so we're finishing it up this morning. We're going to look back at verse 3 and then jump to the last two verses in that section, verses 13 and 14. If you want to read along with me, you can. Uh, it would be helpful for you to have a Bible in front of you probably, but if not, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you're uh, tuning in from home, we welcome you. It'll be on your screen as well. Let's read together uh, these verses, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him, that is in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Say with me, the grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Let me ask a question of you this morning as we get started. Do you know that Jesus died for your sins? Do you know that he died for your sins? Because there's a difference between saying, I believe that Jesus, I believe in Jesus, or even I believe that Jesus died, I believe that Jesus died for sin, and saying, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Is it personal? Is it personal good news to you? The reason I ask that is because of what we see here in this text. Paul is laboring to make much of all three persons of the Trinity here. He tells us that God the Father has planned for our salvation. That's verses 3 through 6. That Jesus Christ the Son has accomplished our salvation. And then here that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, his role is to apply our salvation to each one of us individually. That's verses 13 and 14. It's the Spirit's job to make what Jesus has done personal in the life of every person that believes saving faith is personal that's where the spiritual power of it lies in how personal it is and so we see here we've talked about the father's grace and the son's grace this morning we see the spirit's grace and here is the way that paul describes the spirit's grace it's like this first that the gospel becomes real in your heart secondly that the future becomes real in the present so that, thirdly, the love of God can become real in the world. Okay, the Holy Spirit is a witness, we're told here. He is a down payment, and he is spiritual power for a life of mission. You see all three of those things here. Really, we're just going to look at verses 13 and 14, phrase by phrase. It says there, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're going to take each of those in turn, okay? And let's just do that together as we go through this. First, the apostle says this, verse 13. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit's grace, first, is to cause the gospel to come real in your heart. The Holy Spirit is a witness. Let's talk about that word seal there. Do you see it? In the ancient word, excuse me, in the ancient world... If you were sending a correspondence, you would authenticate it by adding a seal, possibly a ring or a family crest of some kind. You would dip it into melted wax and then attach it to the document. 
And the seal was the proof that it was real and not a fake or a forge of some kind. A seal would be affixed to any official document. So what does it mean when Paul says that you were sealed with the Spirit? Well, there's a debate, actually, because the language, remember, is confusing. These verses from verse 13 to 14, excuse me, 3 to 14 are one run long, I can't say that phrase, one long run-on sentence. The phonetics of that are tricky, I guess. Let me put it this way. It's a little like going into your teenager's room and there being stuff thrown everywhere and you can't even see the floor, right? The closet is empty because it's all piled up. That's what, that's what the language is like here as you, as you read it, particularly in the original language. It's just, it's a mess. It's all over the place. It's piled up. It's hard to put it, pull it all out and put it into its proper place. And when that happens, the meaning of the text is not always clear. And when the meaning of a particular text is not clear. What you have to do is you have to go to the other places in the scripture that are clear. And there are two most likely meanings of this phrase being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I honestly don't think you have to choose between them. They are both true. They are both important. And so let me just walk you through both of them. And the first would be that what Paul is saying here is that the Spirit is the proof. Because remember, the Spirit is the seal, it's a proof, it's an authenticating. So it's that the Spirit is the proof that a person is truly believed. How do you know if your faith is real? You have the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. You sense his presence in your life. You experience his power. You, you see the fruit of love and joy and peace, patience and so forth growing in you. In Romans 8, for example... Paul writes this, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the Holy Spirit, according to that verse, is the seal on God's work in your life to bring you to true faith and repentance. It is the witness, it is the proof that you are the real thing and not a fake. Okay, but the second thing is, and I think it's just as important as the first, is that one other aspect of what Paul might be saying here is that the Spirit not only is the proof that a person is truly believed, but the Spirit also proves to our hearts that the gospel is really real. The sealing of the Spirit is the ministry of the Spirit to bear witness, to authenticate, to prove to our own hearts that we belong to God and that he loves us. And that's right out of that same Romans 8 passage there. It says this, uh, just a few verses below what I read a minute ago, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the seal there, according to Paul, is something subjective. And that really is the, the debate here. Is it, is it something objective? Is it something subjective? And we even got in kind of a tussle in our little pastor's group that we, we do every Wednesday. But the, I think the point is that, yes, it's both. It's both objective and subjective. It's something objective. It's the proof that a person is truly believed, that, they, that their position is, you know, that they are in Christ truly. But it is also, it's also something that's subjective. It's the inner authentication of the gospel. It is, it's the Spirit powerfully convincing you that you're loved by God. The gospel becoming real in your heart, passing from just a mere theoretical knowledge to a firsthand knowledge. Not going from truth to feeling, like you leave truth behind and now you're in the realm of feelings, but from truth to a deeper experience of the truth. Jonathan Edwards described it as the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and actually tasting its sweetness. There's a difference. And the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what the psalmist sings. We read uh, Luke 24 this past Thursday, I think. 
uh, in our community Bible reading. It's the story of two disciples uh, in the days following Jesus' resurrection. They had an encounter with Jesus. They, uh, they were walking along the road. He came to walk with them, and he taught them about the resurrection. But it says there that they were slow of heart to believe. In other words, they knew all the doctrine. They had a master's degree in theology. They had spent you know, three years following Jesus around, and yet as he taught them, something happened. The things they knew became real and new to them in the way they weren't before, and it says that their hearts began to burn with the truth, that the gospel set them on fire. It became real to them in a way it had never been in all of that time of being with Jesus, and it propelled them forward into the mission, and that's what I'm trying to describe. We, if we were honest, this morning would have to admit that we are too often calloused and hard-hearted towards God, even in believing. And even in believing that hardness of heart can remain, we are quick, quick to doubt and slow to believe. And yet there are times when the Holy Spirit comes and takes the truth that we already know, but he causes it to come deeper. He causes us to know it in a different way, in a deeper way that sets us on fire. I mean, you can say, I know God loves me, but still be full of anxiety and fear and selfishness because one of the spiritual realities that we have to wrestle with is that there are all kinds of ways that we can know and still not know the truth. And that's one indication. I know God loves me, but then you say, well, where's all that anxiety? Where's all that fear? Where's all that, where's all that just selfishness that's, that's a part of your life coming from? Well, it's, it's the reality of that you can know, but at the same time not know. And what we need is for the Spirit to come in and seal the truth in our hearts and authenticate it so that we start to know in all of the ways we don't yet know. And know in a way that takes away all the fear. It happened to John Wesley. At one point in his life, he was becoming, he had become a Christian already. He felt spiritually dull. He wrote in his journals about just the dullness he felt and, and he was ready to give up and walk away from the faith. And he went to a meeting at Aldersgate. And listen, this was the worst, like this was the worst Bible study in the history of church Bible studies. They were reading Not only were they not studying the book of Galatians, they were reading a commentary on the book of Galatians. That's what they did for the Bible study. Doesn't that sound thrilling? Not only that, they they were reading Luther's commentary on Galatians, but they weren't even reading the commentary. They were reading the preface to Luther's commentary on the letter to Galatians. That'll, we're going to do that at 5 o'clock on Tuesday night this week if anybody wants to join us, right? I mean, like, nobody would show up for that. Who wants to come to that? And Wesley went to that meeting, and as whoever was reading just read the commentary from the preface, he describes his heart being strangely warmed, and everything that he knew that he had believed became real to him, and that experience birthed the Methodist movement. See, there are constants and there are fluctuations when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And I'm on thin ice here. This is dangerous territory, but I think that's true. There are constants and fluctuations, and the constants are these. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, and if you have the Spirit, you have all of Him. It's the Holy Spirit who worked in your heart, we're told here in verse 13, to repent and believe and began the work of sanctification, which will go on incrementally and steadily through your whole life. It is the Holy Spirit who bears the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control, right, and all of those things in Galatians 5 in you and he does it increasingly it's the holy spirit who animates you with gifts with graces for particular roles inside and outside the church teaching and discerning and helping and leadership and all that is supernatural there is teaching right and then there is supernatural teaching and it's and you know the difference a lot of times 
there are, there are people who are temperamentally encouraging and just naturally encouraging. And then there are people with the supernatural gift of, of encouragement. And you know the difference when you see it. And the Holy Spirit does all of that. And those are the constants. But then there are the fluctuations. I mean, later in Ephesians, Paul commands us to be being filled, to be being filled with the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 18. He says you can grieve the Spirit. You can frustrate or block His work. And so if you believe in Jesus, you get the Spirit. And when you get Him, you get all of Him. But there are times, there are times when He comes and He works in a special way. And that's what we're talking about. That's, what, that's part of what we want here, too. Thomas Gibbon told a story that I've used a number of times that illustrates this, but I think it's so helpful uh, I'd love for it to become part of just the canon of Redeemer as we think about the gospel. He, he was watching a father and a son walking along the street, and they were talking and walking together and enjoying one another. And it was obvious, Thomas Goodwin said, that the, the father loved the son very much. But then there was one point as they walked along that the father bent down and swept the son up into his arms and hugged and kissed him and told him how much he loved him. And the little boy put his arms around his father's neck and squeezed him back. And then the father put the boy down again, and they kept on walking. And Goodwin was watching all of this, and he asked, was the little boy more a son in his father's arms than he was walking beside him? And the answer, of course, what's the right answer? No. But what's the other right answer? Yes. Legally, no difference. Objectively, no difference. But subjectively, big difference. In the father's arms, he was experiencing his father's love. He could feel his father's strength in his embrace. He could hear his affection in his voice. He was experiencing his sonship in a more profound way than even walking beside his father. So here's my question to you. Do you ever pray for that kind of experience of the truth? Do you know it's possible for the Holy Spirit to come and take things that you already believe and you already know to be true, but to make them even more true to your soul and seal them inside your heart are you aware that it's even possible because i believe we should be praying for the gospel to become more and more real to our hearts because that is that is the grace of the spirit here secondly paul says you were sealed with the spirit excuse me you were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it so not only does paul describe the spirit's ministry as the gospel becoming real to your heart but also in that phrase there, it, through the Holy Spirit, the future can become real to you in the present. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. Let's talk about the word guarantee. Do you see that, verse 14? And it refers to money given up front as a pledge that the rest of what is owed will be paid. So just like when you buy a house, the bank requires a down payment. And by paying the down payment, you are committing to pay the rest of what you owe. So the Spirit, we're told here, is a pledge that the future that God has promised will actually come about. God has made a down payment on that future, and it's the Spirit. The Spirit is the guarantee of that future that God has promised. Paul, again here, says that we have an inheritance. Do you see that, ver that word? But his way of saying it is strange here, because in verse 11, if you have your Bible, you want to look back. We looked at this verse last week. In verse 11, he says we've obtained an inheritance in other words, we already have it. It's already ours. But in verse 13, just two verses later, he says, we've not yet acquired it. And remember, there's no punctuation. This is one run long, you know, I can't say it. I can't say it. I'm just going to give up one long run-on sentence. There you go. Whew, okay. I'm mirroring Paul in doing that, I think. But it's just such a mess. It's just so jumbled together. 
You know, in verse 11, it's we have it. In verse 13, we don't have it. So which is it? Well, I mean, I think, again, the answer is both. It's not here yet, but it's a sure thing. And it's so sure that you could say we already have it, even though we don't actually have it yet because of the Spirit. It's a theological knot you have to untangle a little bit. But let's try. In the whole, at the end of all that God is doing, in the end of all things, God will bring about something of absolute beauty and goodness. Later in Ephesians, Paul refers to it as the day of redemption. That's chapter 4, verse 30. The day when all of the bad will somehow be turned to good. To paraphrase from Brothers Karamazov, when something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts and heal all resentments. I mean, all the language of the prophets will become reality. The desert will become pools of water and bloom of flowers. And in those verses, in chapter 4, Paul uses similar language as here, which is why it's significant. He says, you can look at it in verse 30 of chapter 4. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The same language of sealing is there. So let me give you an illustration. I'm, um, I, don't, I don't even know why. It's, it's strange, these things that kind of happen in life. But I, I'm completely obsessed with Mount Rainier for some reason. I, I, I probably, growing up in Florida, I really don't, <laughs> Ashley's laughing, I really don't know what, like, what it is. And so years ago, I was asked to do a praying life seminar in Seattle, and I said yes. I don't think I even asked Ashley if it was okay if I went, because I thought, I'll get to see Rainier. And it'll be, and it'll be amazing. Now, I didn't know that in Seattle, most days, it's too rainy and cloudy to actually see Mount Rainier. Uh, you know, and so I, I didn't kind of factor that into my, my thinking. Um, you can't miss it out the windows of the plane if you've ever flown into Seattle on the, way, on the way in and out. But coming in on that trip, it was so cloudy, uh, you couldn't really see it. So I was terribly disappointed. And then the next morning, uh, before our seminar started, I got up and went for a run, and again, it was so cloudy uh, that you couldn't see anything. I mean, I knew it was there. I kind of had, I knew where it should be. It just was so hazy and, and whatnot, um, you know, hidden behind the clouds. Couldn't see it. But then, on the second day there, the next morning, I got up, and it was one of those days in Seattle. If you've ever been out there, uh, it was crystal clear. The sun was shining. The clouds had kind of faded away. I came to this meadow along my run, and, uh, and there it was. You know, it was, it was there where I knew it was the day before, I just couldn't see it. I mean, and then, uh, and then the next day was cloudy and I didn't get to see it again the whole trip. But there was this one, there was this one glimpse of being able to see this thing that had so fascinated me. Uh, I now get to go, well anyway, you don't need to know that. I get to go a yearly with, a, with my kids' school now and there have been days where it's just been, I, mean, I, it's, I just am overwhelmed by it. If you've never, you need to go see it. But anyway, fam, I don't need to become a Mount Rainier. This doesn't need to become like an advertisement for Mount Rainier, but... Here's what I would say. The day of redemption language there refers to the ultimate beauty and glory that God is making out of all things. And for now, like that, it's hidden behind the clouds of our collective sin and selfishness. It's there. It's there, we're told. We just can't see it until that final day when everything will be revealed. I mean, you, and you know it's, it's coming is a sure thing. I mean, God's dream for the world is not in doubt. Paul says, because the Spirit is already here. And it was the Spirit, remember, hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation. And that same Spirit who has been sent now into the world by Jesus ahead of time until the whole creation is renewed. The Holy Spirit is the world engine of the new creation here and now. So much so that the future, the language of the New Testament anyway, is that the future is already present. Not fully, 
right? Not fully. But the Christian ethic is to live now, life now in light of then. We live life now in light of then. And as we obey, what we're told happens is, is that future is being realized in the present more and more. It won't come in, in all of its fullness until the day of redemption, but it is already coming. And the text there in Ephesians 4 also says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can block the work he's trying to do of pushing the new creation out into the world. We can grieve it. And the way we grieve it is by doing the opposite, by not living towards the future, confident of the future that's coming, but instead by living in the past, by holding on to disappointments and resentments and living in unforgiveness and, and acting as if we are orphans when we're sons and not realizing the full potential that is ours because of all that God has done. We are called to join the Holy Spirit in his work of seeing the beauty and glory and goodness of our inheritance to see it get pushed down into the world in small but significant ways the future is so real it's it's such a sure thing that it can begin to take shape in the world ahead of time it can become real now in the way that we live our lives together as a church the clouds can part and people who do not yet believe can look at us and say oh there it is, and believe. Which brings us to the third and final thing, and that is where Paul says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, look there, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it to the praise of his glory. When the gospel becomes real in your heart and you live a life that seeks to make the future real in the present, that makes God's love real in the world. The end of all things will be the phrase in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. You see it? To the praise of his glory. That's the goal of everything. That is the end for which God created the world. It is the motivation for all that he does. God loves you. I want you to know that. God loves you. You're his. He made you. He loves you. But he loves himself even more. Because he's not an idolater. I mean, the most passionate heart for God and the universe is God's heart. And for him to be truly for us, he must be for himself. And so it says that the goal in all God does is to glorify himself, to make a name for himself, to create and redeem a people who will live for him and not for themselves, who will live praising and glorifying and enjoying and celebrating him. And we've left this until now. On purpose, but we divided up verses 3 through 14, I'm not going to say the phrase, into three weeks. And we've talked about the different roles of each person of the Trinity in saving us. So again, the Father in verses 3 through 6, the Son in verses 7 through 12, the Spirit in verses 3 through 14. But one of the ways uh, that you can know to divide up the material is that the phrase here in verse 14 is actually repeated at the end of each of those sections. So here's where it would be helpful for you to have your Bible so you can look at the whole. Because in verse 6 we read... That the Father predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will, and there's the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then again in verse 12, Jesus redeemed us, making it possible for us to be forgiven our sins. He's obtained an inheritance for us, we're told, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, there it is, to the praise of his glory. And here, for a third time, in verse 14, on the day of redemption, when we finally inquire, acquire our inheritance and the future becomes a reality, it will be, we're told, to the praise of his glory. 
So kids, those of you who are in catechism on Wednesday night, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. Right? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. Do you know what that means? It means that you are, your truest self, that you are an image bearer. You're not a student. You're not a mom. You're not a boss. You're not a teacher. Those are roles. They are how you're called to image God. But you, at your core, your truest self, you are an image bearer. You are a worshiper. That's what you've been designed and made to be. You're not an American. You're not a victim. You're not a Presbyterian. God help us all. You're not whatever label you would put on you, right? You are an image bearer, a worshiper of God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. This is Peter chapter 2. That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Your purpose for being, whether you believe or whether you don't believe, your purpose for being is to make known the excellencies of God in your declarations and your doing. And the Holy Spirit's job is to make the gospel so personal, to make it so real in your heart, to cause you to get so much joy from it that you live your life in praise. I mean, the Christian, the Christian apologetic, Right, The way we defend our faith, the Christian apologetic is praise. Not arguing, not fighting against whoever the perceived enemy is. We evangelize through joy. And the Holy Spirit's job is to also make the future so real to you and through you that it actually begins to take shape in the present. It breaks through the clouds. And people who don't believe can see and be inspired Right, that the beauty, that the beauty of our life together would be would so powerfully mirror the beauty of heaven that it would lead the world to worship. That's what he's talking about here. But notice, last thing. Notice the the glorious is grace. Do you see that verse fourteen? Or it, actually, it's up in verse six. In verse six, it's not to the praise of his glory; it's to the praise of his glorious grace. And so it's, it's something about the grace of God there. Grace magnifies God. It's when his power meets with our weakness. It's when his love goes undefeated against our sin. It's when we make a mess of things and somehow, against all odds, beauty comes out of it. I mean, that, that's when the glory really is there for people to see. God wants to be known for his power. He wants to be known for his holiness. But he wants to be known, most of all, for his grace. And that means that there's a particular way that we have to live in the world. Right? In order to be to the praise of his glorious grace. I mean, how do you live a life? How do you, as, a, you know, as, as someone who understands the chief end of man is to glorify God, you try to, in all that you do, do it for the glory of God. What does it mean? What, is the, what are the strategies? How do we live particularly to the praise of his glorious grace? And I, there's so much we could say, but I try to be shorter on these communion Sundays. I would summarize, I think, ultimately, just by way of application, I would summarize the way of living to the praise of his glorious grace in two words. It means you live an honest life, and it means you live a hopeful life. You live an honest life, and you live a hopeful life. We magnify God's grace by living honestly. And here's what I mean by that. By admitting the truth about ourselves, that we are not the all-star team. I'm sorry if that's news to you. Right? We are not the good people here to save the day. We're as much part of the problem as anybody else. And our gospel, which is good news, is predicated on the bad news. And here's the bad news. We are 
Every one of us, sinners in the sight of God, without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. You acknowledge that. Every person who, who joins this church acknowledges that. But we also acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come into the world, not because we just needed a little help. He came because no matter how hard we try, we can't stop getting it wrong. We can't stop messing it up. And his death on the cross for our sins means that God loves sinners. And do you know what that means? If God truly loves sinners, then we don't have to hide the truth about ourselves. We can be honest about the worst parts of who we are. I mean, can you imagine how refreshing that would be to meet a person who refused to posture and blame shift, who seemed immune from any need to boast, who responded to criticism, not by defending themselves, by like saying something like, I mean, duh, I mean, yeah, I know, right? Or responded to criticism like, yeah, I mean, can you imagine what it's like to be married to me? I mean, pray for my, you know wife or my husband or whatever i mean a person who would beat somebody to the criticism you beat them to the criticism can you imagine that without losing your joy so i i I don't really know how to do it but i'm trying to describe a person that people aren't necessarily impressed with it's not that people are impressed with this person they're impressed with how unimpressed they are with themselves does it make sense and where does that kind of security come from What love can make that kind of brutal honesty, joyful admission of wrong and guilt possible? Only God's love. Only God's love can do that. Which is why, if you live an honest life, it points beyond you to the glorious grace of the one who's made you. But also, not only honest, but also hopeful. Honest, but not fatalistic. I mean, able to stare down the scary things and not put your head in the sand because it doesn't matter how bad it gets, right? It doesn't matter how bad it gets. Nothing is ever beyond the reach of God's grace. In fact, (laughs) God often allows things to get beyond the ability of human strength just to show off. And so again, where does the boldness to keep believing when it's going bad? I mean, where does that come from? Where does, what powerful love can make you immune to discouragement and cynicism? Only God's love can. Which is why I think if you're able to live both an honest and a hopeful life, it, it's, it, there's something about it that signals there's something beyond just this person that I probably need to know about. And so let me ask this question of you again this morning as we close. Do you know that Jesus died for your sins? Is the gospel that personal? If so, it will empower you towards an honest and hopeful life to the praise of his glorious grace. As Isaac Watts, uh, I think the response is exactly what Isaac Watts uh, sang or what he wrote in in one of his hymns. He said, Arise, my soul, my joyful power and triumph in thy God. Awake my voice and loud proclaim his glorious grace abroad. Amen. Let's pray that he would do that work in us, even as we prepare to come to his table this morning. So, Father, we would acknowledge that too often we are mute, we are dull, we are discouraged and overwhelmed, we lose our joy. I confess that's true of me too, too often. And it's because there are ways that even though we come, some of us week after week, and we hear the good news of the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus, yet 
In some ways, it's still not sunk all the way down into our hearts. And so what we need, Father, is we need exactly what you've promised us here in these verses. Lord Jesus, your death and resurrection and ascension into heaven made it possible for you to send the Holy Spirit. And so we would just extend our, our hands open before you to say, oh Lord, we so desperately need to be renewed. We so desperately need the power of your Holy Spirit, not only to come, for some of us, to break through our hard-hearted unbelief so that we can trust in you and repent of our sins. But for some of us, we just would say, oh, we've just grown hard, we've grown tired, we've grown weary, and we need your Spirit to come and break through and to make the gospel real to our souls. Or, or we've just become so ground to the dirt with bad news that we need your spirit to come and to remind us of the glorious future that is our inheritance that even now is breaking into the present, even in the ways we can't see. And to buoy our hearts with joy and with hope so that we, in this moment, it might be true of us, that we would have this, this sense, we would have this urge in us to lift up our souls, to lift up our voices and loudly proclaim even to one another the glorious grace of our God and Savior. And yet we know there's ways that we're not even ready in this moment. So as we come to your table, would you even use that to make us so, so that the end of all of this this morning would be that we would be people stepping into our true selves to worship you, to declare your excellencies to one another and then to the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Man, that is truly should be the song of our heart. And so receive this benediction then. This is the promise uh, that the reason for thanks does not end with what we've talked about today, but it's going to be there for you as soon as you leave for the rest of the day, tomorrow and the day after and the day after, because of Jesus' work on your behalf, the Father's face is turned towards you to bless you. And so receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. Give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You go in his peace. Thank you.